Episode 5, Running Away, Only to Come Back Home. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Canadian Foreign Policy Podcast. My name is David Tabachnik, and I'm a professor of political science at Nipissing University in North Bay, Ontario, Canada. This podcast is designed for my course, Canada and the World, which I've taught on and off at Nipissing for the last 15 years. Since most on-campus classes have been cancelled for the winter 2021 semester, I figured that a podcast would be a good substitute. In the last episode, I took us out of the golden age and into the 1960s, where Canada faced new challenges. Pressures began to build on defense budgets, and the country was seeking a more defined, if not narrower, foreign policy. The danger and failure during the Congo mission began a rethinking about Canada's role in peacekeeping. The experience in Cyprus was perhaps less fraught, but highlighted the problem of open-ended missions. Originally slated as a three-month mission, Canada stayed on the island of Cyprus for almost three decades. The experience in Vietnam highlighted the difficulty of maintaining a maintaining a principled or moral position while under pressure from the United States to assist in their larger Cold War effort to defeat communism. While Canada stayed out of the ill-advised and ill-fated Vietnam War, it did facilitate American ends and goals through backdoor diplomacy and weapon sales. This still did not stop Prime Minister Pearson from lecturing the Americans about their behavior in Southeast Asia opening a rift with the United States. Undoubtedly, Canada's relationship with the Americans worsened all the more when Pierre Trudeau became Prime Minister in 1968 and Richard Nixon becoming President in 1969. Nixon's imposition of tariffs on Canadian goods compelled Trudeau to seek out the third option, to reduce the present Canadian vulnerability of Canada's over-reliance on the United States and relatedly an attempt to diversify by increased contacts with Japan, Europe, and Latin America. As the head of external affairs later put it, if the Canadian mouse so frequently found herself crowded in bed by the American elephant, to quote Prime Minister Trudeau's metaphor, it was largely because she had failed to seek out other bed partners. Or, if I may be allowed to coin my own phrase, Canada had puritanically opted for a strict monogamy in a polygamous world. And I suppose that's fairly obvious what he's getting at. You need more partners. Can't be monogamous when it comes to trade. In this episode, I'm going to assess how this third option policy then manifests and judge to some degree its successes and failures through the 1970s and into the 1980s. Because it directed Canada to greater independence overall, it doesn't simply manifest in foreign relations, but also in domestic policy under the broad banner of economic nationalism. So that's the phrase there that we have to take away, economic nationalism. For that matter, Trudeau's time as prime minister is mostly characterized by the trials and tribulations on the domestic front. The 1970s began with the October Crisis, when members of the FLQ cell, terrorist cell, kidnapped a British diplomat and a Quebec cabinet minister, murdering the latter. 
Trudeau during that time invoked the War Measures Act, which spurred mass arrests. The middle of the decade saw the rise of the Parti Québécois, led by his old college friend, René Lévesque, who became premier of the province of Quebec in 1976 and led efforts to win a separation referendum. Trudeau worked vigorously to keep Quebec in Canada and succeeded after the separatists lost the 1980 referendum, again led by his friend Lévesque. (coughs) Pardon me. This was then followed by his efforts, Trudeau's efforts, to patriate the Constitution and introduce the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which he did, of course, in 1982. His foreign policy was focused on keeping the country from eroding its sense of identity and keeping it unified, not necessarily from an internal split, as the case with Quebec, but from undue external influence, mostly from the United States. While Trudeau was successful in keeping the country from splitting apart by rooting out what turned out to be a relatively small group of violent FLQ terrorists and handily defeating the separatists in that 1980 referendum, his foreign policy really did fail to reduce Canada's independence on the United States. In the end, Trudeau accepts the need to maintain both NATO and NORAD as critical alliances, which are of course both dominated by the United States. He even accepts American nuclear weapons testing, no, weapons testing, sorry, on Canadian soil, despite his later peace initiative to stop the proliferation of nukes. And I I sort of stumbled on that a bit because the weapons were like cruise missiles could be used for for nuclear weapons, of course, which caused great controversy, but uh, they did not have warheads. We weren't blowing up bombs, you know, in the middle of northern Saskatchewan is what I'm sort of clarifying there. As mentioned in the last episode, two major initiatives introduced in this period were the Foreign Investment Review Act, or FIRA, and the National Energy Program, the NEP, both designed to strengthen Canadian ownership and control of the economy. So uh, one dealing with uh, direct foreign investment, and the other dealing with the energy sector. FIRA, the Foreign Investment Review Act, was motivated by what Stephen Clarkson worried about in 1972. He wrote, While conventional wisdom had blithely maintained that no political consequences resulted from the nationality of foreign investment, there is a new awareness that the political and cultural costs of becoming a branch plant economy are considerable and that even the economic costs may by now exceed the benefits Canada receives from its foreign investments. He goes on to explain, however necessary foreign capital may have been in the early stages of Canadian development, its potential for economic creativity is now seriously challenged, since much of the expansion of American capital is through the instrument of takeover of existing Canadian companies, a transfer which makes no economic contribution and often leads to plant shut. <coughs> pardon me, (coughs) shutdowns while simply reducing the degree of competition in the Canadian market. So again, that term branch plant economy is key here. Um, As I described it earlier, in essence, all Canadian companies would become just merely branches of an American company. And as Clarkson suggests, that makes it easy for then the Americans just to shut their Canadian uh, manufacturing down when it is convenient. Canada would have very little control. And that's something that these economic nationalist uh, moves, FIRA and the National Energy Program, are designed to stop. 
O'Sullivan puts it simply, Dwarfed by a powerful neighbor to the south and heavily dependent upon foreign investment to sustain its economy, Canada has longed for the capacity to set its own course and lessen its dependency on political and business decisions made in other countries. Although Canada realizes the need for foreign capital, arguments have been made for 20 years favoring regulation of foreign participation in Canada's economy. And as one other scholar summarizes, by 1970, 36% of all assets in the non-financial corporations, non-financial corporations in Canada were controlled by foreigners, including 69% in the mining sector and 58% in the manufacturing sector. The United States controlled over 75% of all foreign investment in Canada. A study commissioned by the Canadian government in 1972 known as the Gray Report, concluded that although foreign direct investment had been necessary for economic development, it had side effects which were not always to Canada's long-term benefit. So that's quite remarkable, those st- statistics. Uh, 36% of all non-financial corporations and you know that 69% in the mining sector <coughs> and 58% in the manufacturing sector are quite notable. As Herb Gray, the Minister of National Revenue and the author of the Gray Report, very creative name, tells the House of Commons on May 2nd, 1972, takeovers are the form of foreign investment least likely to add significant benefit to the Canadian economy. The extent of foreign control of a number of industries in Canada is large enough to make the acquisitions of more Canadian businesses a matter of concern to the government and to Canadians generally. As part of its response to this issue, the government will continue to develop positive policies to encourage Canadians to participate more fully in the development of their country and to encourage the growth of Canadian sources of capital, technology, and management. Our policy is designed to ensure that this country continues to develop as rapidly as possible in a way which is consistent with Canadian needs and aspirations and which safeguards our vital interest. Okay. In late November 1973, Alistair Gillespie, who's the Minister of Industry, Trade, and Commerce, explains another element to American domination of the Canadian economy. He called for Canada to become more than an appendage of foreign corporate giants south of the border and warns, We have become too accustomed to expecting others to do our research, product innovation, and market development, and too accustomed to others telling us what we might do. The degree of foreign control has dulled or inhibited entrepreneurship in Canada by Canadians and Canadian firms. If we continue to rely so heavily on others, we turn over the future development of Canada to foreign control. So all of this concern then leads to the tabling of the Foreign Investment Review Act of 1973. This new law is motivated by a recognition of, and I quote, the extent to which control of Canadian industry, trade, and commerce has become acquired by persons other than Canadians, and the effect thereof of the ability of Canadians to maintain effective control over their economic environment. This, according to the text of the bill, is a matter of national concern. Broadly, the goal then was to review any application of a non-Canadian to invest in a business in Canada to assure that it was of quote, significant benefit to the country. So you would have to meet that standard. According to this new law, would there be a significant benefit to the country? And it becomes quite a challenge, of course, to measure such a thing. 
And so uh, would this then scare off foreign investment, which some in the business community were concerned about? FIRA was in place by 1974 and was implemented in a series of phases. The the idea, of course, wasn't to deter foreign investment in the country, but to instead ensure that such investment would lead to greater employment, innovation, and prosperity in the country, not just profits for foreign investors. But, of course, it was also designed to encourage more Canadian investment in their own country, making us less dependent upon the United States and less vulnerable to seemingly arbitrary decisions such as the Nixon shocks of the early 1970s. It might be said that FIRA was a mixed success. While it was the source of much tension between Canada and the United States, with the Americans even suing the Canadian government, arguing that FIRA violated international trade laws, it did facilitate greater Canadian ownership and a lessening of Canada, uh, lessening in Canada the possibility of the country becoming completely a branch plant economy. Not surprisingly, um, people on the left argued that it didn't go far enough, and those on the right argued that it hurt the economy. Upon the victory of the progressive conservatives under Brian Mulroney in 1984, running under the idea or banner that Canada is open for business again, quote-unquote, FIRA was replaced by what is now called the Investment Canada Act. This was in 1985, which actually actually loosened things up. It lessened restrictions on foreign investment. The 1988 election was then fought between the Liberals fought with the liberals and the conservatives, who the liberals were still arguing for the same sort of protectionism, and the progressive conservatives under Mulroney promised a free trade deal with the United States. So uh, I'll discuss this so-called free trade election of 1988 in future episodes, but uh, it gives you sort of insight on what's to come that um, eventually in the 1980s, the debate really shifts and uh, that economic nationalism is traded for free trade and you can understand that is quite a significant change and we'll talk more about that later. There is one related aspect to FIRA that remains and by at least some measures can be considered a real success, uh, so it remains to this day. The Gray Report also pointed out the consequence of a massive American foreign investment in this way. The presence of large foreign investment concentrated in the United States' hands increases the difficulty of developing the distinctive Canadian culture. In short, Canadian identity. In short, the problem of Canadian nationhood. So uh, this resulted in part by the creation of the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission, or the CRTC, which actually, frankly, um, comes a little bit before FIRA. Uh, but it's of of the same kind. Its mandate is to enforce Canadian content rules on the air and uh, in print in magazines and newspapers at the time, and it uh, reflects this sentiment. So for radio, and here's just some example of the CRTC uh, regulations on Canadian content, when Canadian content regulations were introduced in 1971, the percentage of Canadian songs played on commercial radio was at least 25 For regulation purposes, songs were deemed Canadian if they matched at least two criteria, that is, music written by a Canadian, an artist who is Canadian, production having taken place in Canada, and lyrics written by a Canadian. The primary objective of the CRTC's 1971 formalization of content policies is identified as a cultural one that is encouraged 
that is to encourage increased exposure of Canadian music performers, lyricists, and composers to Canadian audiences. While application of these rules is sometimes complicated, if not also convoluted, it has resulted in a relatively vibrant music scene and artistic scene in Canada. Whereas in the 1970s, there was great concern that Canada's identity would be overwhelmed by the American cultural juggernaut. It also explains why, when you're listening to the radio, the Tragically Hip is on every 15 minutes, or Alanis Morissette, or Rush. Um, also, you know, who, are, who is that band that plays, uh, you know, uh, American Woman, ironically. Um, uh, they're, they're on all the time. Burton Cummings? It's the Guess Who. There it is. I, I knew I was going to remember it eventually. So, yeah, you might wonder why we have uh, so much Canadian music on the radio, and that's partly why. Now, I'm not saying it isn't good. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure there's some more up-to-date examples than the, uh, the few I gave, but uh, that's still in application today, these Canadian content rules. Now, far more conver- controversial than FIRA or the CRTC, was the National Energy Program, which I mentioned above, and that was unveiled in the 1980 budget, but was still part of this economic nationalism that I have associated with this so-called third option. As the budget document reads, Time is running out. While Canada is a net exporter of energy and is dealing from a basic position of strength, the chink in our armor is our dependence on imported oil. Today, we are a net importer of oil under a continuation of previous policies. We could expect to become increasingly dependent on foreign supplies, therefore unnecessarily subject to the vagaries of the world oil market. The federal government feels compelled to put Canada's energy house in order. On behalf of my colleague, the Minister of Energy, Mines and Resources, I am tabling tonight the Government of Canada's National Energy Program. So this is a Canadian Canadianization of the oil and gas sector. And it was directed to secure 50% ownership of the energy sector, the oil and gas sector, I should say, by 1990, 10 years after the launch of the program. But its most enduring impact was probably domestic, not international. The program was promoted as an effort to counter the prevalence of rising world oil prices and unpredictable wild price swings. However, the program was detested in Alberta, Canada's largest oil and gas producing province. Uh, The saying, let the eastern bastards freeze in the dark, became a widely popular bumper sticker. So the the people in Alberta were pretty pissed off. It is also the title of Mary Janigan's 2012 book on Western animosity, which eventually spurs the creation of the Reform Party in the late 1980s, and for a short time dominating Canadian politics from the Pacific Coast to the Manitoba-Ontario border. So the Reform Party is um, a party that comes out of what is called Western alienation. This is more for domestic politics, but obviously the National Energy Program spurred this Western alienation and the Reform Party, who uh, really represented these Western interests and, again, dominated the political scene from uh, British Columbia all the way to the Manitoba-Ontario border, as I've already said. So uh, just quoting from Janigan's book, then, of the NDP, she writes, How could Ottawa do this? Didn't the prairie provinces control their resources? Did the federal government have the right to clamp those taxes on oil and gas at the wellhead? Although Alberta controlled the resources, the federal government could flex its power to regulate interprovincial and international trade. Resentment 
percolated across the West. The famous bumper sticker from the 1970s became the Western shorthand in the early 1980s. Let the Eastern bastards freeze in the dark. The raw phrase somehow captured those very long decades of frustration with the rest of Canada. Okay, so there you go. Nice little uh, uh, point there. And, uh, you know, just getting in the weeds of federalism for a moment, we understand that uh, natural resource development is a provincial jurisdiction, whereas here, as uh, Janigan makes clear, interprovincial trade is a federal jurisdiction, as is international trade. And so the federal government used those levers to control um, Alberta oil. Um, and uh, this really pissed the Albertans off, as is clear. The program was canceled in 1986, but it still hits a raw nerve in Alberta to this day. And, you know, there was a joke going around when I was even a kid uh, because part of the National Energy Program was to set up uh, nationalized gas stations around the country uh, called Petro-Canada. Now, they're still in existence, but it used to be a crown corporation. It was sold off eventually. as we walked away from the economic nationalism, but uh, Petro Canada was said to stand for Pierre Elliott Trudeau rips off Canada. Okay, so that's another good joke uh, for for you today um, uh, to keep you amused as I continue on. Uh, anyhow, the National Energy Program was canceled in 1986 under the Mulroney government, but Albertans are still pissed off about it, frankly. I uh, worked in Alberta for a while, and even the students that I was teaching, who were, again, 18, 19 years old, uh, (laughs) they were still mad at Trudeau, and this is even well before Justin Trudeau took over, so they were mad at Pierre Trudeau, which I thought was uh, odd. Uh, But uh, I guess that anger is intergenerational. So, anyhow, the, the point here is that these programs that I mentioned were designed to protect Canadian independence, mostly from the United States. That was what was going on in 1970. Another very different incident at the end of the decade and the start of the next brought a new problem to Canada's sense of identity and independence in a much more direct way. The infringement and questioning of its territorial sovereignty in the Arctic and particularly the Northwest Passage. And actually, I'm not not talking about the 70s. I'm going all the way back to the 60s. So when I say the end of the decade, the end of the 1960s. So (laughs) I know we got in the 80s for a minute. And now I'm jumping all the way back into the 1960s. But we, we are moving forward. So in 1963, Ivan Head, who later goes on to be an advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau, wrote, The unitary appearance of the formation and, to a lesser extent, its location suggests support to a claim to these waters as internal waters. So they're talking about the Northwest Passage. Surrounded on all sides by Canadian territory, they possess the character of Canadian waters. It is highly unlikely that uninterrupted surface passage from the Labrador Sea to either the Arctic Ocean or to the Beaufort Sea, or vice versa, will ever be a reality. Further demands for the right of innocent passage through the archipelago and are speculative to a degree. Okay, so uh, that's a lot of uh, interesting things I even had said there, but the idea is they're internal waters, and when we say internal waters when it comes to international law, you mean, in other words, that it is the territory of the country it is internal to. So again, looking at the Northwest Passage, you might say, okay, all of those islands are around it, and it is internal waters, uh, but not everyone agreed that it was internal waters. Other people thought it was uh, international waters, and that, of course, means it is not sovereign Canadian territory. 
So despite Canada's claims that it was their sovereign territory, in 1969, an American oil company sent an ice-strengthened oil tanker, the SS Manhattan, on a test voyage through the Northwest Passage. This would be followed by a similar test voyage the next year. New technologies and techniques allowed the ship to move through waters previously only navigable, navigable, that's hard to say, by reinforced icebreakers. So the point that Ivan Head was making earlier is because of the ice and the short period when there is any opening, um, industry at that time would never take advantage of the Northwest Passage. But here in 1969 with new technology, you could sort of say, oh, well, maybe you could move an oil tanker through this area. This event with the SS Manhattan augured a time when the passage would become a busy shipping lane or a new arena for American and Soviet warships to fight the Cold War. Okay, so that's an actual separate thing and of major concern as well. Uh, Donald McRae observes, the Manhattan voyages demonstrated that commercial shipping was not feasible at the time, so it wasn't entirely successful, it was very difficult, but it opened eyes to the enormous potential for environmental damage if oil tankers were eventually to transit Arctic waters, and it reawakened interest in the debate over sovereignty over the waters of the Arctic. Hithrow too, because of their location and the associated difficulty of navigation, Canada's claims of sovereignty were really not subject to question or concern. McRae further explains... One basis for a sovereignty claim over the waters between the islands of the Canadian Arctic archipelago is that they are internal waters of Canada on the basis of historic title. Such a claim involves treating Canada's rights to sovereignty over the lands established through historic, effective occupation and control as rights to sovereignty over the waters as well. Claims to uh, um, treaty waters as internal... No, claims to treat waters as internal, I think treaty waters would be something else, claims to treat waters as internal by reason of historic title are not unknown around the world. The basis for Canada's now uncontested claim that the waters of the Hudson's Bay are internal waters rests in part on such a claim. And some support for an historic claim to the waters of the Arctic archipelago rests on the practice of the Inuit, who for centuries occupied the land and ice, making no distinction between the frozen land and the frozen sea. Okay, so that's, again, sovereignty and political science is always a bit of a dicey issue. Who gets to make the claims? And part of the claims are historic. Here we're actually saying because the Inuit, who are Canadian citizens, have lived there for centuries, if not millennia, it is Canadian territory. But as an American policy statement from way back in 1947 makes clear, the U.S. government assumes that the Arctic Sea and the airspaces above them, being outside of normal territorial limits, are not subject to exclusive territorial control of any state and are therefore open to commerce and navigation in the same degree as other open seas. Aha! So there you go. Um, you, you got the Americans, or, or friends next door to the south, saying, that's not Canada's, that's... that's for, for anyone, and we're going to move our, our oil tankers through there if we want. Their concerns were legitimate because the reliability of shipping lanes in the Middle East um, led the Americans to view the Northwest Passage as a possible future viable sea route to ensure the reliable delivery of oil. As one executive at ExxonMobil exclaimed that year, I guess, is this 1947? I I have my footnote here. I could find out. 1969, that was the year of the SS Manhattan. 
he said, an open Northwest Passage means an international trade route that will have a profound influence on the patterns of worldwide trade. A year-round sea route in this area could do what the railways did for the United States and might do it quicker. The success of the Manhattan's goal, of course, as I've suggested before, were ambiguous. And there is some controversy as to whether the ship even asked for any permission to enter Canadian territorial waters. Oh, and this is a big deal, right? Did we let them in or didn't we? Michael Byers argues that when the SS Manhattan chose not to seek Canadian permission for its voyage, Mr. Trudeau cleverly granted permission anyway, thus preventing the precedent of a non-consensual voyage. He also sent a Canadian icebreaker to assist. It freed the tanker from sea ice 12 times, making the need for Canadian support for the voyage unambiguous. However, Elizabeth Elliot Meisel suggests a different version of events. The United States informed Canada that it would also send a Coast Guard ship to assist the Manhattan. It did not ask for permission to enter the passage, as that could be interpreted as recognition of Canadian sovereignty. Okay, so that's a bit of an issue for uh, you know historians, if not political scientists as well. Um, did the Americans ask for permission? Uh, did we give them permission? Uh, did they need our icebreaker or didn't they? Here it's uh, sort of suggested that they didn't ask for permission, nor did they need the icebreaker, and we just made it look that way. So kind of an interesting uh, example. Either way, Canada responds quickly to this incursion by passing the Arctic Waters Pollution Prevention Act in June of 1970 which asserts Canadian authority and regulation over the Northwest Passage, including all shipping in zones up to 100 nautical miles off its Arctic coasts in order to guard against pollution of the region's coastal and marine resources. So this was not simply about territorial sovereignty, but also about protecting the environment. The grounding of a tanker in February 1970 off the coast of Nova Scotia had raised the average citizen's concern and consciousness. Prime Minister Trudeau clarifies the purpose of the bill. And I quote Trudeau, We have told our friends and neighbors that this Canadian step designed to protect the Arctic waters will not lead to anarchy. It is not a step which diminishes the international rule of law. It is not a step taken in disregard of the aspirations and interests of other members of the international community. Canadian action is instead an assertion of the importance of the environment, of the sanctity of life on this planet, of the need for the recognition of a principle of clean seas, which in all respects as a vital principle for the world of today and tomorrow as was the principle of free seas for the world of yesterday. The Americans, not too happy, respond in kind, saying, We cannot accept the assertion of a Canadian claim that the Arctic waters are internal waters of Canada, nor can we accept their other proposals. Such acceptances would jeopardize the freedom of navigation essential for United States naval activities worldwide and would be contrary to our fundamental position that the regime of the high seas can be altered only by multilateral agreement. Okay, so that's kind of cool, isn't it? Because here we have Canada actually doing it a bit of a go-it-alone approach, at least here, uh, with the claim that this is internal waters and passing legislation, which essentially regulated passage through the Northwest Passage. And the Americans here <laughs> are, are, instead of acting unilaterally, let's say like they do in Vietnam, they're saying, no, we need multilateral agreement. So that's kind of an interesting uh, distinction, isn't it? Or a uh, uh, change of roles, perhaps, is the way to put it. So on top of it, from the early 1960s onwards, Americans and possibly the French and British as well, 
and definitely Soviet submarines, played a deadly game of cat and mouse in and around the Arctic Ocean. To this day, the U.S. argues that the Northwest Passage is an international strait, which by definition are open with relatively few restrictions to ships from any country. Through the years, Canada has asserted its claim on the passage many times. In 1985, for example, Joe Clark, who uh, was a former prime minister, was prime minister in 1979, he was appointed to the head of external affairs under Mulroney, so he became head of external affairs, both progressive conservatives. He says this, the policy of this government is to exercise full sovereignty in and on the waters of the Arctic archipelago, and this applies to the airspace above as well. We will accept no substitute. The policy of the government is also to encourage the development of the navigation in Canadian waters. Our goal is to make the Northwest Passage a reality for Canadian and foreign shipping as a Canadian waterway. The 1980s also saw the Mulroney government very nearly purchase nuclear submarines. 20 years later, oh, and sort of that whole thing with the nuclear submarines is, is quite um quite complicated, but 20 years later anyhow, Prime Minister Stephen Harper announced the purchase of armed icebreakers and this will be both subject for future episodes, so uh, the nuclear submarines and the icebreakers will come up as we get to them. In the words of political scientist John McGee, the meaning for Canadians was simple. Either we take on a reasonable share of the patrolling of the Arctic or we shall be deemed in terms of real politique to have ceded sovereignty to the Americans. So, yeah, uh, again, it's similar to the defense against help uh, idea here. If we're not going to patrol the Arctic, let's say, against Soviet submarines, um, then, uh, you know, we'll do, the Americans will do it for us, in essence. And, and uh, that puts a question mark on our sovereignty. No doubt about it. This all took a toll on Canada's relationship with the United States. Another example. In a rather stark March 8, 1976 assessment, State Department official Richard Vine, so this is American State Department official Richard Vine, noted that Secretary Kissinger, okay, who was the Secretary of State under Richard Nixon, during his visit to Ottawa last October, agreed with the Canadian Secretary for External Affairs that the special relationship between the United States and Canada was probably dead. Wow. Also noting that while relations have improved overall, there is widespread concern in Canada at the extent of U.S. ownership and control of Canadian industry, even as the benefits which U.S. investment have brought are recognized. There is also considerable preoccupation in Canada with the omnipresence of U.S. books, periodicals, movies, and TV broadcasts, in a word, fear of U.S. cultural dominance. These two threats intertwine with many of our problems and often raise prickly sensitivities. The preoccupation with a distinct Canadian identity and the fear of dominance by their massive neighbor to the south is a reality in present-day Canada. The U.S. government has a responsibility to protect the American interests affected to the extent possible and appropriate. We will continue to encourage Canadians to view our extensive interdependence less as a threat or encroachment than as a process which has brought real benefits to both our nations and which should continue to serve both countries well. 
So, okay, you kind of get that from Richard Vine. He's kind of taken an assessment in everything that we've talked about. It turns out Canada's uh, Canadians are uh, prickly sensitive to American cultural domination. That's similar to, you know, that point from uh, the Kennedy administration that we had some sort of inferiority complex. Uh, Americans just can't understand what the problem is, it seems. So taking a step back, all of these decisions tell us something about Trudeau's approach to foreign policy during the 1970s. Harold von Rykoff put it this way in his 1978 article, Trudeau became convinced that Canadian foreign policy was not sufficiently attuned to changed international circumstances, notably the waning of the Cold War and Canada's decline, as he perceived it, in global status following the reconstruction of Europe and Japan and the entry of significant new actors in the international system. The failure to recognize the relative decline in status left Canadians with an inflated sense of global significance and thereby promoted a fruitless search for an international role and a degree of international posturing, which Trudeau regarded as both unrealistic and unbecoming. So that's all the way back in 1978, and it is quite amazing, you know, uh, as I've said in uh, past episodes, you know, this golden age uh, (laughs) overshadows almost everything, and so even in 1978, everyone was recognizing, yeah, with Europe getting its act together, and Japan, of course, asserting itself, let alone uh, China coming to the fore, Canadians' relative influence, Canada's relative influence, would be lesser. Uh, That does make sense. Uh, But, uh, you know, uh, Trudeau actually trying to make foreign policy around that lesser status uh, was not necessarily politically popular. And so uh, a difficult transition. As I've detailed so far... This change in attitude seemed to manifest most often in a disagreement or conflict with the United States. Rather than worry about maintenance of the international system, along with Canada's ability to influence the course of the Cold War, Trudeau wanted instead to assert what we might call a Canada-first approach. This manifested in yet another break with the United States, recognition of the People's Republic of China, or PRC, and the renewal of diplomatic relations. So yes, uh, you know, uh, we've talked a little bit about China here, uh, but uh, Canada recognizing communist China before the Americans is interesting. Uh, As a younger man, Trudeau had actually traveled to China in 1949 and again in 1960. As a clear indication of his attitude to the country in his May 29, 1968 Canada and the World speech, Trudeau stated that it was no longer possible to speak of a monolithic communist bloc and that it was no longer possible... Uh, for to view communist countries as being implacably hostile to us. This was to some degree at odds with American foreign policy, which was late to realize the stark division that had existed in the communist world. Um, yeah, so uh, if you're not quite familiar with that term, monolithic communism, that that's important when we're looking at international relations. It seemed often that the Americans just lumped all communist countries as one big monolith. And we know, of course, now that there was a great division between Russia, Soviet Union, I should say, and China. So it wasn't monolithic. And this is something that Trudeau had recognized long ago. As Paul Evans explains almost on cue, conservative critics pounced in the 1960s, accusing Trudeau of being soft on socialism and communism and holding leftist sympathies for Cuba, China, and the Soviet Union. A later generation of neoconservatives denounced his cultural relativism for appreciating neither the level of misery in China, 
1960 visit coincided with the famine that followed the disastrous Great Leap Forward, nor the tyranny of Mao's rule. He moved ahead with negotiations at precisely the moment the Cultural Revolution was at full boil. Okay, so there's a lot in there if you don't know about China that much. Um, these were uh, mass social movements, uh, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, that caused tremendous misery in the country. Uh, you could view them as a genocide, certainly uh, caused famine, as suggested in that quote. And so it seemed at a strange thing for Trudeau to then uh, recognize this government. Um, uh, instead, they, they should be condemned after the government announced recognition of the People's Republic of China on October 13, 1970, Diefenbaker, who remained in the opposition benches, so the old premier was still, or prime minister, I should say, was still there uh, fighting the good fight, he reacted with a rather hysterical accusation. So this again is enhanced. All over the world, Canada has a black eye. And now what is this government doing? It has recognized communist China. Well... I can just imagine the deluge of communist spies who will come in here attached to the Chinese embassy when it opens. They will all masquerade as diplomatic representatives. With the United States alongside us, we, ha we have not yet seen anything of what will happen when this group comes to Canada and begins its active responsibility, which is to destroy Canada from within, as well as undermine the United States. Whoa. I mean, that's a bit much. I mean... Uh, the sentiment is not exactly wrong. Uh, China, certainly more recently, has been accused of spying on everybody. Um, and, of course, the Soviets spied on Canada for a very long time. But uh, the idea that they were going to destroy Canada simply because we allowed them to have their embassy here, right? So once you recognize a country, it can put staff in that embassy. Uh, you know, it's a bit hysterical is what I'm trying to say. In the end, this proved less controversial at home than some had thought and was followed by Trudeau's trip to China in 1973 to reestablish full diplomatic ties. What is more, despite getting ahead of the Americans when it came to recognizing the communist, gover communist government in Beijing, it may actually have helped the United States. Okay, so again, this was a bit of a conundrum for the Americans and maybe Canada did it a bit of a favor here. William Saywell put it this way, Trudeau's China policy benefited from circumstances in ways that could not have been foreseen by the cynics of 1968, or for that matter, by the Prime Minister himself. The 18 months of negotiation leading to recognition, as well as the immediate years after it, saw a major shift in both China's domestic policies and the international balance of power in the Pacific. In short, the United States not only waned, wanted out of Vietnam, it was prepared to accept Canada's new China stance as one of several symbols of its own changing China policy. Washington had begun to recognize that a reasonably stable East Asia with a radically diminished American military presence was only possible by bringing an end to Chinese isolation and seeking the beginnings of a Sino-American rapprochement. Perhaps just as important, Richard Nixon saw in a new China policy a unique opportunity to play an exciting and lasting role in the history of American foreign policy. Okay, so that's kind of cool, isn't it? Overall, the early recognition that Canada gave China paved the way for other countries to do the same and finally have the People's Republic of China, the PRC, sit on the UN Security Council. And I hope you recall the idea that uh, from 1949 until uh, this final recognition by the Security Council um, that it was Taiwan uh, that 
actually sat on the Security Council, which is odd for obvious reasons. Um, so this actually was one of the few unmitigated successes Trudeau had on the foreign policy front. It wasn't exactly <laughs> planned that way, but uh, kind of interesting the way, uh, way it's viewed now. That said, uh, the longer-term aspirations of opening up China, of course, have not entirely succeeded. Trudeau had hoped that a China open to the world would be subject to the same diplomatic persuasion as other countries and could be expected over time to adjust its political, economic, and social practices to bring them into harmony with international norms. And boy, oh boy, that sounds so familiar because we say we have been saying that for decades and really China has not exactly come around. It's still a bad actor on a host of fronts, including human rights violations, the environment and trade policy. Mind you, compared to how it was in 1973, China has in fact conformed to many other international norms. Um, we're going through a pretty rough patch with China right now. Um, including the fact that they have arrested two seemingly innocent Canadians and are holding them uh, in their prisons. And uh, this is often called the two Michaels. Um, uh, hopefully this is going to get worked out. There's been some suggestion that the new Biden administration is going to uh, you know, put some more pressure on China to release, release these Michaels. At any rate, while there were many other foreign policy efforts on trade, international development, and beginnings of the development of an approach to address the injustices in South Africa, the apartheid regime in South Africa, the mid-1970s marked a period where it seemed clear that the Canada-first policy that had been started under the third option was moved away from. We really abandoned that notion. The government instead became preoccupied by the internal crisis within the country, marked by, again, the rise of the Parti Québécois to a majority in the province of Quebec in 1976. So that's kind of what I was saying earlier. That That's really what Trudeau is thought about in this period, of course, uh, keeping unity in the country and ultimately bringing, uh, repatriating the Constitution, bringing the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1982. So uh, we don't talk a lot about the foreign policy during this period. But in uh, May 1975, Trudeau did inform the heads of government uh, at that year's NATO meeting that Canada, and I uh, quote here, Trudeau clearly and unequivocally, unequivocally has a belief in the concept of collective security, Canada's support for NATO, and Canada's pledge to maintain a NATO force level, which is accepted by our allies as being adequate in size and effective in character. Okay, so remember, he kind of comes in dissing NATO, and then just a few years later, he's saying, no, we are supportive of NATO. Okay, so uh, this is, again, a change, uh, and indicative of the general change that this whole Canada first let the Europeans take care of themselves. Uh, who needs NATO? Uh, that's gone. Uh, Trudeau also noted an increase to the Canadian defense budget by 12.5% in the last year and another 11.5% uh, that year that he was speaking here in 1975. So the next decade actually saw the investment of hundreds of millions of dollars in the purchase of German Leopard C-1 tanks, the Aurora Long Range Patrol craft designed for anti-submarine warfare, and the CF-18 fighter. So... While there was an initial effort to lessen Canada's role in NATO, uh, which was, of course, announced with great flourish, the mid-1970s was a re-engagement with NATO. 
this suggests a return to the fold of multilateralism. And, and so, sorry if you, you didn't quite catch that. Obviously, NATO is a military alliance, and so defense spending then is an important part about membership in NATO, and that becomes a big issue later on, and I'll talk about that more. Um, Canada now is being accused of not spending enough. Um, and so all of the purchase of this equipment to actually engage in the military alliance was very important. So, um, uh, you know, you need, I guess, uh, fighter jets to actually, you know, participate in NATO uh, and in much more on fighter jets later. Recognizing that the or an initial document there, Foreign Policy for Canadians, which lays which which associates with the third option, uh, the, all of that had run its course. The government set on yet another foreign policy review, hoping to lay out their vision for the 1980s. However, this document that the liberals were putting together was never released, as the liberals actually went down to defeat after 11 years in office. So, um, here in 1979, the Progressive Conservatives had again a minority government and this time under joe clark who i mentioned before okay um you know uh, he didn't last very long so under a lackluster banner of quote let's get canada working again this is their platform the pcs argued the progressive conservatives argued the true the true government has frittered away canada's initial international prestige and raised serious doubt that this nation is serious about Ignoring international commitments. Okay, yes, we're okay. So the point is, uh, we're we're not we're not paying attention to our international commitments. I suppose that's the idea. They promised the conservatives promised. I should say the progressive conservatives promised to make foreign policy reflecting the character, values, and ideals of Canadians. And again, I don't really know what that means. You know, governments always say that. Uh, what does what are the character, values, and ideals of all Canadians? Hmm. But they do say they want to remain strong within NATO and NORAD. And while this didn't deviate all that far from the ruling liberals, it may be that Canadians had grown tired of the rhetoric of the third option, even though it was no longer the practical policy of the government. So you understand what that means here. We've kind of dealt with this already. Uh, Trudeau really had walked away from the third option, walked away from that sort of uh, Canada first approach. The progressive conservatives, though, understood that in the psyche of Canadians, they wanted to hear that Canada was going to be, you know, <laughs> back in the game, even though the liberals had already turned that, turned that around. It was too late, in essence, and they lost the election. The Liberals did promise a so-called responsive foreign policy, and I don't know even what that means. <laughs> Their platform included a reminder that the Liberal the liberal government has crafted a foreign policy suited to a leading middle power nation through active membership in international organizations such as the UN and NATO, plus ongoing participation in Commonwealth and Western Economic Conferences. Our multifaceted foreign policy has always worked for the elimination of poverty, the eradication of the arms race, global economic stability, and the freedom of the individual. Needless to say... Foreign policy was really not on the top of the of Canadians' minds in 1979. The economy was slowing down, and a recession was on the horizon. As one scholar viewed it, with the worldwide economic downturn in the late 1970s, Canada, like its major allies, became much more hard-hearted. Its aid program became more self-serving, 
so foreign aid or development aid, and humanitarian considerations took a backseat to the promotion of Canada's trade opportunities for the remainder of the Cold War. Of course, it is difficult to assess Clark, the Clark government's foreign policy. He was only prime minister between June 4, 1979 to March 3, 1980. But as a practical matter, his government fell on December 13, 1979, so he was really only able to govern for seven months. Among the proposals they put forward in that short period of time, Clark campaigned on a promise to move the Canadian embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Okay, so this is controversial, as is the case now. Most governments do not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, as it was captured by Israel in the 1967 Six-Day War and is still claimed as a capital of a future Palestinian state. And, of course, we could talk a long time about all of that, but uh, this was uh, Clark, um, you know, sticking his neck out to some degree. Uh, right after the election, Flora MacDonald, Clark's Secretary of State of External Affairs, so the election they won, restated the government's intention to follow through. During the recent election campaign, Flora MacDonald says, my party stated that it would be prepared to move the Canadian embassy from Tel Aviv to the western part of Jerusalem. That statement stands, and there's no intention to go back on it. And that's important language, isn't it? Because, of course... Um, uh, there is a division between West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem is dominated more by um, Arab citizens uh, in what's often called the occupied territories, whereas West Jerusalem has more Jewish citizens. Uh, and that dynamic has changed to some degree in the years since, but uh, that's what they're implying there. However, under pressure from his own cabinet, Clark ends up backing away from his promise later that fall. So, the big foreign policy thing that he had, that he was distinguished for, he backs out of. On October 29, 1979, he tells the House of Commons, and under questioning from the retiring leader of the opposition, who is Pierre Trudeau, he's going to retire, he says this, We do not intend to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. It is if there is a just and lasting peace settlement that settles and clarifies the question of Jerusalem, that may allow us to reopen the question. Until there is such a clarification within the context of a just and lasting peace settlement, the Canadian embassy will stay in Tel Aviv. Oh, okay. Uh, th that's the end of that. Uh, well done, Clark. Uh, of course, 1979 to 1980 was also an extremely busy year for international relations. The occupation of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union and the ensuing boycott of the 1980 Moscow Olympics was preceded by the Iranian Revolution in 1979 and the hostage crisis, which turns out to be another storied event in Canadian foreign policy history. The crisis in Iran involved 52 American diplomats and citizens by supporters of the revolution who had taken over the American embassy in Tehran. The hostages were held for 444 days from November 4th, 1979 to January 20th, 1981. Six diplomats escaped the embassy and hid in Canadian Ambassador Ken Taylor's residence and official office. Okay, so we understand what kind of what went on there, don't we? Okay, uh, a bunch of Americans were held hostage. Uh, the Iranian revolutionaries, the Islamic revolutionaries, were really pissed off for the Americans at the Americans, and that's a long story. But basically, the Americans had supported this uh, fairly evil dude, the Shah of Iran, which they didn't like, and they were basically saying the Americans are like the great Satan, and so they they held their, these hostages. But six of these guys escaped. 
And then, in a joint operation between the CIA and Canadian personnel, the Americans escaped Iran by using faked Canadian passports on January 27, 1980, with the Clark government defeated by then, but the executive still in office awaiting the election. Uh, okay, so uh, I think we can kind of understand that. Um, or waiting until people came into office is what I was trying to say. At the time, Canada was showered with much praise. In an article with the headline, Canada to the Rescue, Time magazine recounted the cunning maneuver executed by Canadian diplomats in secreting six Americans in hostile Tehran for almost three months and then spiriting them to safety last week provided a heartening interlude in Washington's still unsuccessful struggle to free 50 hostages from their captors in chaotic Iran. With a spontaneous spontaneous gush of gratitude, Americans extended congratulatory hands across the border. It was as though the U.S. were almost surprised to find that it had a friend after all. Where other allies had nervously shunned sanctions and offered only rhetoric against Iran, Canada had literally come to the rescue. In Detroit, billboards facing Canada suddenly sprouted Canadian maple leafs and appreciative messages like, Thank you, Canada. Wow, that's awfully nice. And indeed, the Canadian involvement deserves credit. The Canadians involved deserve credit for their bravery. In truth, however, it was the American CIA that, behind the scenes, planned and executed the entire rescue, keeping things on the down low, as there were still many American hostages left behind. So you get the idea here. The Americans wanted the Canadians to get the credit, not to piss off the Iranian hostage takers, you know, saying, well, you you got six of your guys out. Oh, we're going to kill six of your guys. That's the last thing, of course, you would want. Um, this January 8, 1980 State Department uh, memo makes this fairly clear. The summary of conclusions reads, The restricted group briefly reviewed the status of our people who are hiding in Tehran. The Canadians believe that as long as they can maintain an open embassy, our people are safe in their custody. The Canadians are worried about the risks of an attempted exfiltration. Much has been accomplished on the planning side, partly as the result of Peter Tarnoff's trip to Canada. This is one of the dudes planning this. We've prepared both American and Canadian passports for their use. The Canadians prefer that American passports be used. The Canadian ambassador in Tehran will have the final say on this. A message is being sent to our people in Tehran via the Canadians. Okay, so you can kind of see that. And my point being is the Americans planned this whole thing. Uh, the Canadians a little hesitant about using Canadian passports, which we generally are. Uh, spies like using Canadian passports historically because Canadians are not as suspicious, right? So an American can get away. You know, he puts a maple leaf on his uh, on his uh, backpack or whatever, and then he pretends to be Canadian, eh? When the government, the Clark government, was defeated due to a miscalculation on a confidence budget vote, this indecision about the embassy in Jerusalem weighed on the the campaign. And whatever credit they deserve for handling of the hostage crisis would either come too late or simply wasn't enough to right the ship. And that's a bit confusing for those who don't know about Canadian politics, right? So they had a minority government. They put a budget out. Um, and then they needed, of course, a majority of the House to vote for that budget. It's a confidence vote, as we say. Uh, a budget always is. Any money bill is. And uh, they actually miscounted. They thought they had the votes for their budget, and they didn't. And that's kind of why they went down to defeat so quickly. And once they lose a confidence vote, almost always, 
with a couple of exceptions, the, the, the government is dissolved and essentially you need to uh, have an election. So that's kind of what I was talking about there. Anyhow, in his assessment, Ronald Landis, Ronald Landis explains, in his first few months in office, the government became linked to an image of flip-flops on major policy initiatives epitomized by the embassy affair. And that's a reference to Jerusalem. And an, an appeal to the Jewish voters in several marginal constituencies in Toronto during the dying days of the 1979 election campaign, Clark had promised, if elected, to move the Canadian embassy to Jerusalem. In his first news conference after being sworn in as prime minister, he announced his intentions to proceed with the move immediately, although no specific dates were mentioned. The ensuing outcry from the Arab states, along with adverse editorial and public opinion, forced a postponement of the move. However, the damage had been done in that the embassy affair helped to generate the view of an inconsistent and incompetent Ottawa administration. There you go. So there is an election. In Remarkably, in a quick return from the political wilderness, Trudeau decides to remain liberal leader, run in the 1980 election, and then wins a majority government. He comes out of the wilderness. As I've already mentioned, Trudeau immediately turns his attention to the upcoming Quebec referendum, which was set for May 20, 1980. But before his defeat in 1979, he does give some indication of what his government's hopes might be in the 1980s, which were, of course, killed thrown asunder and then you know by their loss in the 1979 election and then by their win suddenly in 1980 this is resurrected uh, so so we can now look back on what the plans were and see see what they were going to do uh, speaking at a special UN session on disarmament Trudeau uh, reminds the crowd we have withdrawn from any nuclear role by Canada's armed forces in Europe and are now in the process of replacing with conventionally armed aircraft the nuclear-capable planes assigned to our forces in North America. We were thus not only the first country in the world with the capacity to produce nuclear weapons that chose not to do so, we were also the first nuclear-armed country to have chosen to divest itself of nuclear weapons. It has been an assumption of our policy that countries like Canada can do something to slow down the arms race, but obviously we can do a great deal more if we act together. Okay, I think we're pretty familiar with that history. After returning to office, he picked up where he left off. In his address to the second United Nations special session on disarmament in 1982, which I will quote at some length, Trudeau preached that, the message Canada brings to this assembly is not one of military strength or power. It is a message of peace which I bring you, a message which all countries, whether strong or weak, rich or poor, must make heard at the present time. Only the deaf cannot hear the clamor rising all over the world against the arms race. In some countries, people's anguish and anger are freely expressed. In some others, people's voices are muffled by repression, but can still be heard by us. Instability is the fuel that feeds the nuclear arms race. That is why, four years ago, I put before this assembly a strategy of suffocation designed to deprive the nuclear arms race of oxygen on which it feeds, from the laboratories to the testing sites. The main elements of this strategy have been long familiar features of the arms 
controlled dialogue, a comprehensive test ban, a halt to flight testing of all new strategic delivery vehicles, a cessation of the production of fissionable material for weapons purposes, and a limitation and eventual reduction of military spending for new strategic weapon systems. It was in the combination of these elements that I saw a more coherent, a more efficient, and a more promising instrument for curbing the nuclear arms race. When the security of the world and the fate of the human race are at stake, all governments have a duty to raise their voice on behalf of the societies they represent. Above all, they have a duty to bring to an end our collective impotence in the face of nuclear peril. Wow. Okay, so the next year then uh, is part of this uh, sort of new uh, mandate. Uh, two seemingly contradictory decisions marked the end of Trudeau's time on the political scene. So he ultimately, of course, retires and uh, the Liberals lose the 1984 election to um, Brian Mulroney and the Progressive Conservatives. But anyhow, just in this little period here, first, he allowed the new technology of cruise missiles developed by the Americans to be tested over Canadian territory. While the test missiles obviously did not carry a nuclear warhead, it was designed as a nuclear weapon, so this is odd that he would allow this when he himself is preaching to everyone else not to do it. But then at the same time, in accord with the long quote I gave above, he launched what was called his Peace Initiative, directed at convincing world leaders, particularly the United States and the Soviet Union, to tone down renewed hostilities and to stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons. The easy and perhaps too obvious criticism of Trudeau's last years in office is that he is a hypocrite. How can you facilitate the advance of weapons of mass destruction, the cruise missiles? At the same time, you are calling on other countries to come to peace and stop proliferation. As John Clearwater recounts, the Prime Minister's office wrestled with the problem of how to reconcile the Trudeau statements on suffocation of the arms race with are allowing the U.S. to make use of Canadian territory to test their cruise missiles. In one assessment of the peace initiative, it is pointed out that outside of any perceived hypocrisy, for many contemporary Canadian security experts and analysts, the Trudeau initiative represented an unwarranted attempt to depart from the successful roles of quiet diplomacy and functionally develop expertise on the legal and technical fronts. Furthermore, and a few apparent compensating virtues that might command it to anyone but domestic public opinion and lesser foreign leaders and publics. The experts were certainly willing to recognize that political will and leadership in international peace and security issues was crucial to successful problem solving in this field, but they believed it to be illusory for Canada to think it could provide such leadership. So what they're basically saying here is this is just showboating by Trudeau. If you want to stop the arms race, you've got to do it through multilateralism, quiet diplomacy, uh, not by visiting world leaders and, you know, getting your, uh, you know, good quotes in the, in the paper. Uh, Trudeau tried to turn the tables on his critics in a open letter published in newspapers across the country on May 9th, 1983. And this is mostly around, of course, uh, the hypocrisy. Uh, he writes... Canada should bear its fair share of the burden which that policy imposes upon us by the NATO alliance. It is hardly fair to rely on the Americans to protect the West, but to refuse to lend them a hand when it gets going rough. 
In that sense, the anti-Americanism of some Canadians verges on hypocrisy. They're eager to take refuge under the American umbrella, but don't want to help hold it. Ah, okay. Well, that is quite amazing, isn't it? So he's not the hypocrite. It's Canadians that are the hypocrites because we get protection from the Americans, and yet we don't want the Americans to uh, perfect uh, or refine that umbrella of protection, which he says, you know, we have to hold. Uh, This letter uh, actually is published after massive protests against the cruise missile testing as they were building across the country. Clearwater writes, Protests were sweeping the nation. The largest set of anti-cruise missile demonstrations in Canada took place on April 23, 1983, when the mayor of Vancouver, Michael Harcourt, led at least 75,000 people through the streets to Sunset Beach, where more than 80,000 people attended a rally. In Toronto, a small demonstration of some 15,000 took place at Queen's Park, the site of the Ontario provincial government. Led by Toronto Alderman John Sewell and Jack Layton, the crowd moved down Bay Street, the heart of the financial district. Others gathered all over the country, from the northern city of Whitehorse to the southern towns past Toronto. Saskatoon, not the largest of Canadian cities, managed to bring together at least 3,000 marchers who followed a replica cruise missile through the streets in protest. In Cold Lake, 13 people were arrested for trying to block the entrance to the base. There's an there's uh, Air Force base there. There were over 100,000 people in the streets that day. These protests would continue to grow as the danger of the times and the implication for peace and security grew clearer to Canadians. Nonetheless, testing of the cruise missile began in northern Alberta on March 6, 1984 and ended exactly 10 years later on March 6, 1994. The testing program officially ended soon after. So, again, there wasn't nuclear warheads in those cruise missiles, but we were helping, I guess, in the arms race. Trudeau's peace initiative saw him travel around the world, imploring presidents and prime ministers to change course. He met with Ronald Reagan on December 15, 1983. Reagan's diary entry of that day sums, sums up what most understood. Trudeau was traveling the world, trying to arouse interest in a five-big-nation summit to try and reduce nuclear weapons. He hasn't been able to get much interest. Actually, it isn't a sound idea, but still we support his arousing interest in other nations, all of them to talk of eliminating such weapons. I think he went away with some added ammunition. (laughs) Okay, no pun intended there. The next year, again, Trudeau decided not to run for office uh, in the next election. He formally retired on June 30th, 1984. And as I mentioned, the Progressive Conservatives won the 1984 federal election handily, which would begin a new era in Canadian foreign policy focused on closer ties with the United States. We will talk about that in future episodes. Thank you for listening.